Howdy, and welcome to Wise About Texas, the Texas History Podcast. I'm your host, Ken Wise, and I want to thank you very much for tuning into this podcast for another shot of Texas history. I'm taping and releasing this podcast in August of 2018, and of course, being Texas, it's hot, but it, we're also entering the heart of hurricane season, approaching the first anniversary of Hurricane Harvey. As longtime listeners know, the world headquarters of Wise About Texas is near Houston, and uh, we got 53 inches of rain on the world headquarters, luckily stayed dry. Uh, my parents were not so lucky. They just moved back in last weekend. We're all very happy about that. Many, many people that uh, I'm acquainted with are just now getting back in their houses, and many have not yet gotten back in their houses. So y'all throw up a prayer for everybody who was victimized by Hurricane Harvey. And I can tell you everybody around here is getting a little nervous as we enter this part of hurricane season. It's between middle August and middle September that you really got to be careful Uh, but everybody down here is prepared and uh, we're upbeat and we're going to get through it. Well today we're going to talk about a war story specifically World War II and we are a few days past the August 6th anniversary of the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima and the August 9th anniversary of the dropping of the bomb on Nagasaki The Japanese government surrendered, uh, announced the surrender on August 15th, and 73 years later, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about World War II and specifically the Pacific Theater. And I'll tell you why that's important, but first, let me mention that I hope all of the listeners of this podcast uh, get their exercise in. One of my favorite things to do for a workout is to get out before dawn and walk around my neighborhood. I've got a little six and a half mile route that I take. And like everywhere in Texas or most places in Texas, when you're out in the early morning, you're going to encounter bats. And those little guys dive bomb me on my walk all the time. But as dawn breaks, it's pretty cool to watch all those bats fly around. It's especially cool when you realize that each one of those little things can eat its weight in mosquitoes every single day. So they are definitely our friends. So how the heck do Texas bats and the end of World War II in the Pacific go together? Well, that's today's story. It's the story of the development of a new weapon of mass destruction, one that would cripple Japan and end World War II. Or should I say weapons, millions of weapons. We're going to start with the central figure of our story, a doctor, an oral surgeon named Lytle Adams, Dr. Lytle Adams. He was from Paint Lick, Kentucky, and he was on vacation in early December 1941 in the southwest. And one of the places he visited was the famous Carlsbad Caverns in near Carlsbad, New Mexico. And of course, while he was there, he witnessed the famed Carlsbad bats stream out of that cavern. Now, it's important that to understand that Lytle Adams was an inventor. He was one of those guys who was always thinking of a way to solve a problem. Uh, he, in fact, he had invented an airmail pickup system that would enable airplanes to pick up airmail without landing so that airmail, which, of course, back in the 40s would have been the fastest way to deliver mail, airmail could be delivered and picked up from places that didn't have a landing strip. Um, Now, later in his life, incidentally, 
uh, Lytle Adams worked on a fried chicken vending machine, which I think is a brilliant idea. And I want somebody out there listening to this podcast to get to work on that fried chicken vending machine immediately. So Adams was in Carlsbad uh, and turned on his radio on December 7th, 1941. And he, like every other American on that day, knew that the world had just changed with the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor and America would be going to war. And the way that Adams' mind worked, he immediately thought back to those millions of bats he had just seen. And he just thought, what if we could use those bats in the war effort? Now, coincidentally, Adams knew Eleanor Roosevelt, the wife of President Franklin D. Roosevelt, and he got to know her through that airmail pickup system that I discussed. He actually flew her in his own plane to demonstrate this system. So Adams just sent a letter directly to FDR. It was January 1942, and Adams noted that most of the Japanese cities were built out of wood and paper So a lot of the buildings and houses uh, were covered in in paper. And his proposal to FDR was, hey, why don't we put a little bomb on a bat and let a bunch of bats loose? They'd take up residence in the eaves of these houses and buildings and start little fires. And all of a sudden, the Japanese cities would burn. Well, that sounds positively batty, doesn't it? Uh, sorry, I had to get that out of my system early in this podcast. Well, the plan was reviewed by FDR, and FDR sent it to William Donovan, General William Donovan, uh, otherwise known as Wild Bill Donovan. He later went on to found the OSS, which is today modern-day CIA. And here's what FDR said about Adams. Quote, This man is not a nut. It sounds like a perfectly wild idea, but it's worth looking into. Close quote. Yep, it sure sounded like a wild idea. But the idea went to the National Research Defense Committee, and the committee contacted a scientist named Donald Griffin. And Donald Griffin at that time had done some what was then groundbreaking research on how bats echolocate. And uh, if you're not familiar with that, bats uh, don't see very well, hence the cliche blind as one, and those chirps they make uh, bounce back, and that's how they know where they are. Well, Donald Griffin, this bat researcher, thought it actually could work. And he wrote back and he said, quote, this proposal seems bizarre and visionary at first glance. Close quote. Well, yes, it certainly did. But he thought it could work. So he reported to the White House and that gave Adams a green light and a secret project was born. It came to be known as Project X-Ray. Dr. Adams put together a team, a fairly eclectic team, as a matter of fact. He got a bat specialist from the Los Angeles County Museum named Dr. Jack Von Blaker. It's B-L-O-E-K-E-R. I'm going to pronounce it Blaker. Um, He got his research assistant, a teenager named Jack Kofer, who later wrote a book on this project. He got an ex-hotel manager. He got a former driver for mobster Al Capone. He also got a young Hollywood actor named Tim Holt. And he had a few others on the team. So this team uh, went to work under the auspices of the Army Air Corps. Now, the first problem they confronted was where to get the bats and what kind to use. Well, the biggest bat in North America, they discovered, is called the Mastiff bat, M-A-S-T-I-F-F, like the dog breed, a Mastiff bat. It has a 20-inch wingspan, and their tests revealed that it could actually carry a full stick of dynamite. Unfortunately, there weren't enough Mastiff bats around 
to make them effective warriors. They also discussed uh, or discovered a muleared bat, sometimes called a pallid bat, and that bat could carry three ounces, uh, but likewise, uh, they weren't tough enough for the assignment. They didn't have the endurance that it would take. So after running through several more species, the team settled on the very prolific Mexican free-tailed bat. Now, the Mexican free-tailed bat weighs about a third of an ounce, but the research revealed that the, the bat could carry about three times their weight. So these little free-tailed bats could carry up to an ounce of explosive, and there were a ton of them. So Adams went himself to Carlsbad to get some, and he trucked them to Washington, D.C. in refrigerated trucks. So what that proved, and they woke up when he took them out of the refrigerated truck, so he discovered that he could chill them down and that with no adverse effects they could survive uh, being actually frozen for a period of time, effectively frozen. So he took these bats down to the War Department building, which is now the Harry S. Truman building, and uh, he put little dummy bombs on these bats and he let them loose in the building, uh, presumably in one room, to fly around. And uh, they flew around with their little three-ounce dummy bombs. So Adams and his team had their bat. Well, he went out on a tour. This lasted almost a year. And Adams himself described the tour as touring over a 1,000 caves and 3,000 mines because they were going to need a lot of these little winged warriors. Carlsbad uh, had a few million of these bats, but that was a little bit too public of a place for the top-secret Project X-Ray. Well, welcome to Texas. Adams went to Texas and discovered three caves, the Bracken Cave just northeast of San Antonio, the Ney Cave or Ney's Cave near Bandera, Texas, and the Devil's Sinkhole near Rock Springs. Each of these caves held millions of these little soon-to-be war heroes. Now they had to figure out how to deliver the bat bombers to the intended target. And to solve this problem, the Army Air Corps enlisted the help of the Crosby Research Foundation. Now, I don't know if you've heard of the Crosby Research Foundation, but it was started by Bob Crosby, his brother Larry Crosby, and the third brother, Bing Crosby. Yep, that Bing Crosby. The Crosby Research Foundation was actually an investment of the Crosby brothers designed to uh, foster new inventions for the private sector, but specifically for uh, the war effort. So it was kind of an incubator, even though that's not the word they used back in the 40s. Well, Adams helped with the design, and they figured out a way to create a bat bomb. And what they did was they would put the little warriors in the cardboard trays. They had a heating and cooling system on this device. They had an, alti an altimeter, and they had a parachute. And what would happen was these bats in the, in the device would hold a little more than a thousand bats. They'd put them in their little trays and with their bombs attached to them and they would drop it and when it reached, when the altimeter uh, read a certain altitude, the sides of the bomb would peel away and it would free the bats. Now presumably during this process the bats would be warmed up and they would escape and go and fly free uh, roosting in the enemy houses and buildings. Uh, but now they also had to develop the actual incendiary device that these little warriors would wear. So they enlisted the help of a Dr. Louis Fieser, or Pfizer, it's F-I-E-S-E-R. 
Dr. Pfizer or Pfizer had invented a new kind of compound that was basically gasoline in jelly form, and he called it napalm. Napalm sticks to whatever it was burning as the napalm burned. So this is perfect. And we still, the military still uses it, by the way. So Dr. Pfizer developed a little nitrocellulose case that could contain an ounce of this napalm. It was about the size of a thimble. He put a time delay fuse on it. And the way he did that was the fuse was a little firing pin held tight by a spring and a steel wire. And right before they put the bats in these cases, they would pour a copper chloride solution into the case with, with the wire which would eat away the wire at a certain rate and activate the napalm after the bats presumably had taken up residence in a very flammable Japanese building. At least that was the theory. So the bomb was clipped to the bat's chest, and it was tied with a piece of string. So another part of the theory was when the bat landed, it would gnaw that string, release the clip, and release the bomb into the house or the building or wherever they were. And, and at that point, if the bat was aware enough, perhaps it could uh, fly off to fight another day. Well, now it was time to test this device. So 3,500 bats were gathered at the Muroc Dry Lake, California lake bed. Now, this is now known as Edwards Air Force Base. It wasn't at the time, but it's now Edwards Air Force Base, which uh, you'll recall is where Chuck Yeager broke the sound barrier and uh, is still in use today. Well, they loaded the bats into the bombs. They chilled the bats down and took off. Now, this is May 1943. At 5,000 feet, it was bombs away. The bomb case came open just as they planned, and the sky was theirs. There was only one problem. The bats weren't awake. So on this initial test, unfortunately, 3,500 sleeping bats fell to their death in the California desert. But they had figured out a good system to rig up the bats. They'd cool them down in ice trays. Now, keep, now let me stop for a minute. This is how small a Mexican free-tailed bat is if you haven't seen one. It'll fit into an ice tray. Their little bodies are about three, three and a half inches long, and their wingspan, I would guess, is uh, about a foot. Um, of course, when they're dive-bombing you on your morning walk, they look giant, but they're tiny little animals. Um, so they cool them down in these ice trays, and then they'd rig them up with their bombs. And they decided that they would move the project to a new auxiliary airfield being built in Carlsbad, New Mexico. So I speculate, I don't know for sure, but I speculate they decided uh, the way that first test went that they needed to be a little closer to a bigger supply of these bats. And so the testing resumed. Now they had some similar problems. Occasionally the bats would not wake up in time to fly off. But they figured that problem out uh, to where they would wake up, but they would occasionally wake up too early and take off uh, higher in altitude than anticipated, which, of course, would enable them to fly further. Now, strangely, this, this type of incident proved the, con- the success of the concept that Adams had because in one test, several of these bats, armed with real bombs, took up residence in the new control tower, a barracks building, and a general's car at the Carlsbad Auxiliary Airfield and set all of those buildings on fire. They burned to the ground. Well, you can imagine how happy an army general was when uh, his car went up in flames. He was not in on the project and they couldn't tell him why. Shortly thereafter, and I'm sure this is no coincidence, the project was transferred from the Army Air Corps 
to the Navy. Well, once the Navy took over, they sent the Marines to guard the Texas caves, and the testing continued. They even developed along the way a little hotter burning incendiary device for these bats. The testing was actually successful. Uh, in the Carlsbad area, the bats started over 30 fires in the area, some of which actually had to be put out by professional firefighters. They did one test in Utah where they built a fake Japanese village out of the uh, similar paper and wood structures that they'd find in Japan, did their bat test, and the bats burned that village to the ground. So testing was progressing successfully when all of a sudden the Navy discovered that they weren't going to be able to deploy the bats in a full-scale operation until 1945, and they pulled the plug on the project. Well, Adams was very disappointed, of course. Uh, incendiary bombing had been effective, had been successful at Osaka, Japan, and some in the military estimated, and this is documented, that the bats could start thousands of fires versus mere hundreds by conventional incendiary bombs. But many people think it was canceled because there was another experimental project going on at the same time. This one was designed to make a bomb that would create a nuclear reaction upon detonation and cause large-scale destruction. And of course, the end of that story was the end of the war itself in the Pacific so next time you see some of our friendly bats around Texas, give a little salute to the winged warriors and their ancestors' contributions to America's efforts in the big one, World War II. Now we come to the part of the show I call Getting There, where I tell you how to go see some of the places I talked about in the episode. I'm going to talk about the Texas couple of Texas locations. The Bracken Cave is still in existence and still home to millions of bats. It's actually owned by Bat Conservation International and you can get you can see the bats come out of Bracken Cave. It's about 20 miles from downtown San Antonio so it's very close to San Antonio. If you go to the web at batcon, B-A-T-C-O-N dot org, Bat Conservation International uh, you'll see the information on how to go see the bats at Bracken Cave. The Devil's Sinkhole is a state park now operated by Texas Parks and Wildlife, and it's in Rock Springs, Texas, west of San Antonio. Uh, so go to the park, uh, Parks and Wildlife website, and you can. Uh, they offer bat-watching tours there at the Devil's Sinkhole. Uh, a couple other places, if you want to see these prolific Mexican free-tail bats, go to the bridge over Congress Avenue in Austin, Texas. Uh, from about May to about October. Every evening at dusk, a large crowd gathers to see the bats come out from under the bridge. And if you're in Houston at the Waugh Drive Bridge near downtown, you can see a similar sight. Uh, but really, many places out in Texas uh, this time of year until about October, uh, if you're out in Texas, you're with some bats. So keep an eye out. Well, that wraps it up for another episode of Wise About Texas. Thank you very much for tuning into this podcast. You can like our Facebook page at Wise About Texas. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Wise About Texas. If you get a minute, leave a review on iTunes. That helps other people find the show. If you'd like to support the preservation and promotion of Texas history, go to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Wise About Texas. Thanks again for listening. Go out and do something for Texas today. Until next time, God bless Texas, and we'll see you down the road.